On the Empire Podcast this week, Mark Miller drops in to kick our asses. We talk Skyfall again with its writers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, and we bring you all the movie news that's on the record, off the QT, and not very hush-hush. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that voted for Monty Brewster in the 2012 US election. Only kidding. We can't vote. As ever, we're going to kick things off with your questions and comments, and to dissect them, I'm joined by my very own Joint Chiefs of Staff. First up, we have a lady who's been a mainstay of the show for four score and seven podcasts which is weird because this is our 36th show anyway um, it's Helen O'Hara hello how are you doing I'm good how are you I'm very well thank you I've actually just been reading about Lincoln I've been reading the book Team of Rivals that Steven Spielberg's film's based on so I know all about four scores and sevens as Four scores and seven And does it mention the vampires at any point in that book? Well, they haven't come up so far, but I'm only about a quarter of the way through, so I'm assuming that they sort of get their own section somewhere. I did look them up in the index and couldn't see them, which was weird. It's weird because it's such a huge part of his it life. It is a huge part of his life, so I'm, I'm guessing that'll, you know, there must be a special. Hunting bit. and killing yeah. vampires, as, as we all know. Um, next, we have a man who frequently tells us ask not what your Ingmar Bergman box set can do for you, but what you can do if your Ingmar Bergman box set is a senator in charge of a sub committee to investigate the use of subtitles in cinema. Mr. Phil Dissemblian, how are you? Very well. I, I, I do frequently ask myself that question. It's true. It's bizarre. <laughs> do you stare at your Ingmar Bergman box set and, and say that? The man who stares at box sets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no, and uh, last but not least is our technical guru, the man who has all our desks bugged just in case. It's Ali Plumgate. How are you? I'm well. I'm the only investigative journalist here, I guess. Yeah, we, yes. Yeah, we make Woodward and Bernstein look like Woodstein and Birdwood. Um, that doesn't make any sense. It? <laughs> yeah. it sounded like it might do. It, it started off well in my head. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't go so well no. when it came out of the mouth. So but. many things that that's the case for Chris. <laughs> that is very, very true. Uh, anyway, welcome all to the show. And uh, let's start on a very presidential footing because we're recording this the night after the US election, just in case you haven't, haven't got it from all the references so far. Uh, we have a question from at... L-O-K-4-L which I believe it stands for locale I'm not sure that could be a, a hipster way of saying it I don't know uh, he, she or it says now that the US election is over what's the best president in a movie slash TV series all together now it's President, president Bartlett Pleasance from Escape from New York West Wing <laughs> oh sorry I, what I did, yeah yeah didn't get that that memo. Uh, so yeah, you think obviously President Bartlett it from is, the West Wing. There, it's not a thinking. It is President Bartlett from the West Wing. In fairness, he had seven seasons to establish himself, whereas not four uh, score and seven seasons. There you go. Uh, whereas everybody else has had to make do with like two hours or something. But it, there, there is no question. I think there is a question. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's politics, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> what about uh, Donald Pleasant's president in Escape from New York? What about what about Kevin Klein's Dave in Dave the good Dave not the yeah, bad no, Dave. the good Dave was yeah. was good, um, yeah. but only in insofar as he resembled President Josiah Bartlett in The West Wing, uh, and the same with you know like Michael Douglas in The American did President. He, that, that prefigured. I know it did. The West Wing. It was just it was there in the ether. It was there in the ether. So The West Wing is basically just a rip off of Dave, and of course Aaron <gasps> Sorkin's own The American President. Yes, well, The American President was basically what got him started on the the train of thought that led to The West Wing. Complete quite with openly. Martin Sheen and complete with know, Martin Sheen. Yeah. And, uh, that great speech he has at the end where he goes I am the, the American president I kind of hope I that I can, I kind of hope I am the president I am the president I that great speech that, I can't uh, remember Obama was I was hoping for that as his victory speech yesterday you know he just finished <laughs> off my name is Barack Obama and I am the president that would have been freaking awesome that would have been awesome uh, what do you think guys do you, do you have anyone who stands out particularly well, Jack Nicholson in Mars Attacks. <laughs> well-rounded P.O.T.U.S. Why can't we all just get along? <laughs> Martin Sheen in The Dead Zone. <laughs> just a quiet, There's a Martin a Sheen thing going on here. There yeah. is. He had a massive political kind of vault fast, didn't he? Because he was a bit of a fascist in that one. Terrifying President Greg Stilson. Yes, Greg Stilson. Yeah. Exactly. Not too far detached from reality, we might think, these days. Yeah, there was a bit of tea party, mm. tea party action there. Doctor Strange loves Merkin Muffley for his name as well. <laughs> yeah, you do kind of wish for a presidential range named after Merkin Muffley, don't you? Yeah, you of course, do. that was never going to happen. What with you know the end of Doctor Strange Love. Well, but Morgan Freeman in Deep Impact, he's very presidential, and he he is tells presidential. It, he tells it like it is, and he presides over the end of the world. It must be said, safe from his bunker, <laughs> deep underneath <laughs> the earth, but still he he oversees the rebuilding process. I guess. And yeah. he's, Mor- he's Morgan Freeman. He is Morgan Freeman, so he does get points for that. But mm. Martin Sheen's Martin Sheen, so we, we can't really discount that. Does that mean it's better than Morgan Freeman? Yes. I don't think so. No, no, sorry, I'm not having that. Morgan Freeman is better than Martin Sheen. 
Martin Sheen has been arrested something like 67 times for protesting causes he believed in. Martin Sheen is awesome. Mr. Graham Pierce <laughs> says, okay. Mr. Graham Pierce uh, says, somewhat bafflingly, uh, Empire Magazine, will you ever get through an entire podcast without mentioning Commando, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, or Goonies? Which is which is weird, because I don't think we've ever mentioned Gremlins or Goonies, apart from the time we had Zach Halleck and the star of Gremlins on the podcast, in which case it would have been weird not to mention that film. Uh, Commando we mentioned a few weeks ago, and Ghostbusters we mentioned whenever Nick's on the show, because he thinks that Ghostbusters 2 is better than Ghostbusters 1, and there's an idiot. But I don't think we've ever mentioned Goonies. I think I'm probably the person in the room who's most qualified to answer this one because, you know, I appear in these things, I edit these things, I publish these things, I re-listen to these things. <laughs> and if you want to know what the drinking game is for this podcast and people who already love this thing... Is it me saying absolutely? It's you saying absolutely. Christ. That's definitely it. Oh, God. Phil? Mm. Home truths? Already. You're partial to an um? Um. Helen? Yeah. We'll laugh over something that Chris is saying. Oh, and Chris, you're not above talking over people. What? If you want to play... No, come on, Ellie, it's not right. <laughs> Touche. Absolutely. If you want to play the drinking game, the ultimate drink the rest of your glass and just fall off your seat is when someone mentions Attack of the Clones. Why would anyone mention I Chris's five-star review of Attack of the Clones? It does happen, and this is why I get so plastered and I'm editing the podcast every week. I can foot you off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just as well we don't play our own drinking game, otherwise yeah. we won't be polluted by the third minute in. Okay, at Andy underscore 666, I presume the first 665 were taken, and it's not a satanic reference. No, all. no. Uh, it says, this is probably one for me and you, Helen. Uh, okay. What are your thoughts on Ridley Scott producing, I think he means producing, six sci-fi slash horror slash thriller films in Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. I think this is good. Uh, the, good the Northern Irish film industry is, is doing rather well. Um, since I have a sort of uh, uh, surrogate cousin slash friend who's involved in it, I think it's good that we're keeping him in business. A surrogate cousin slash Well, like friend. his parents are really close to my parents and, you know, so we're like grown up like cousins, but we're not actually. Friends. Friends, okay. Yeah. okay. Just friends would have done. Well, friends was <laughs> you fine, know, okay. but, you know. It's fine. Uh, it's great. Yeah, I think this is a great thing. Uh, this is the news that Ridley Scott uh, has committed to produce six uh, low-budget sci-fi horror and thriller films in Northern Ireland over the next few years. They'll be shot in Northern Ireland. I don't know whether they'll be based in Northern Ireland necessarily, but Northern Ireland is becoming a little bit of a, of a hub for, for mm -hmm. filmmakers. I mean, obviously, Game of Thrones is largely shot there, which is... Which is fantastic. Yeah, there's been quite a few things. Um, uh, Your Highness was there a few City years ago. City of Embers. Ago. City of Embers. I mean, the Paint Hall, which is where those were both shot, is this huge, huge space, the tallest uh, studio, I think, in Europe or possibly the world, which gives them a lot of kind of scope to, to play around with. And uh, and there are beginning to be other kind of uh, studio facilities all over the country because, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, it's good to put something there. We need some kind of industry in the province. Uh, it's good to see uh, some Northern Irish films coming out as well. Look out for Good Vibrations, which is coming out early next year. It's the story of a Belfast DJ True Life Story is a fantastic film, so keep an eye out for that one. As we say back in Northern Ireland, wee buns and sticking out, etc., etc., etc. Okay, this one's from at Miller Time 1976, presumably the first 1975 were taken. Uh, do you have an actor that if they're in a film, you'll never watch it? Uh, should we say Danny Dyer at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what I was thinking. I'm, I'm going with Martin Sheen in this one to see, <gasps> what, see what colour Helen's face turns. <laughs> puce! <laughs> it went puce, then white, then puce again. It was amazing. Uh, do we have anyone? Ali this is a difficult one because I don't think this is really our bag we are we're not necessarily neggers here no we're posers we're posers that's so a word but that doesn't mean I don't have my own 50 Cent you're on my list Hayden Christensen you're also on my list and the king of this is Dane Cook he is on my list okay I'm kind of with you on Dane Cook however he was very good in Mr Brooks did you ever see that? I have the not Kevin seen Foster that for the previous Kevin reason. Film. Also, Hayden Christensen, Shattered Glass. It's a great film. have not seen it. But I, I agree with you most of the time. I have yeah. seen Takers, and um, that kind of cemented that for me. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, you, you, um, see, you see everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I go along with, with Ali's choices there. Um, I'm not a massive fan of Julian Sands. <laughs> That's a bit of a random one, but but no, otherwise, there aren't really anyone that would put me off seeing a film. Okay. No, I think we're all very positive here. The, the yeah. feeling at Empire is it's Christmas Eve every day, which exactly. is great. And, uh, you know, you, you don't want to have open your presents on Christmas Eve and find a Danny Dyer-style <laughs> action figure in there, do you? That would, be, that would be awful. Helen, do you have anyone? I tend to, you know, actually go and deliberately try to see bad films quite a lot of the time. So, you know, I've actually... <laughs> there's there's very few people I can say that I've avoided because usually they've cropped up somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't particularly rush out to see British gangster movies, I'll be honest, but apart from that... Nobody I, I, does. <laughs> well, no, lots of people do. They keep making them because they cost about 50p and a packet of crisps to make and, and then they, they always 
just make a profit. Yeah. Um, so, but but they're not my bag particularly. So I don't rush for those. But otherwise, you know, webs really. I've even seen Catherine Heigl movies. You make a noble sacrifice. At Timon Singh asks, what do you make of the current trend of naming films after the main character, Alex Cross, Jack Reacher, Jack Ryan, etc., etc.? And this is a bit of a bee uh, in the in the bonnet of Timon Singh because he, he's asked this question previously. Ooh. And uh, it's virtually demanded its inclusion <laughs> on, the, on the podcast because it's such a hot-button topic. Well, he says current. I, I wish to register a complaint because that's not true. It's not current. This has been done since forever. Like, we've had... You know, I've got a list here because I was so adamant to prove him wrong. Uh, you've got <laughs> Billy Elliot, uh, Donnie Darko, Forrest Gump, Austin Powers, Jerry Maguire, Doctor Mi- Strange Love. <laughs> there are many psycho, named Psycho, Mister Psycho. Uh. Um, but these names often are quite interesting. I think the problem he has is the fact that Alex Cross and Jack Reacher. No offense to Jack Reacher, I know he can bash my head in with a thought. Ah. <laughs> quite dull Jack Reacher that doesn't really mean anything if you say Ace Ventura Ventura. you're suddenly going hang on why what yeah but even some of those that you mentioned had subtitles so that Pet Detective How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb etc Man of International Man of Mystery Um, these ones are the pure form you know True, and uh, I think the problem that uh, the team may may have with this is that these are based on books that aren't called Alex Cross Jack Reacher and Jack Ryan Jack Reacher is obviously based on One Shot, which I personally think is a much better title. And uh, as as J- if James Dyer were here, he'd point out that the film really should be called Reacher because nobody calls him Jack Reacher. Everyone calls him Reacher, including himself. In fact, it's a plot point in one of the books where someone alerts him to a hijacking by Indeed. saying Hi yes. Jack on the phone. Yeah, that's right. And then he knows that something's up because no yep. one ever calls him Jack. Mm-hmm. That's right. <gasps> Can you believe it? Can you I believe can. it? You can't believe it. And Alex Cross, I think, is mostly based on I, Alex Cross, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, okay, they've just taken one word off. But it's it's slightly dull, but I guess it's to get across to people in you know, the international box office is such a huge thing these days that you want to get it boiled down to the absolute, you know, absolute purest form you possibly can. Mm. No need to be messing around with, you know, all the, all the Alex Cross films, uh, you know, Jack and Jill and... Roses are red. You don't want to be you well, know, especially in that. The, especially in the middle of a fairy tale revival. That could be very confusing. That's a very good point, Helen. <laughs> That's a very good point. Well, isn't it also, and this is me being cynical, but isn't it also so they can make franchises? So they go Jack Reacher, then they can do Jack Reacher colon one shot or Jack Reacher colon. But they should have called it Jack Reacher one shot from the off. I agree. Do that. I agree. The the other problem though with Jack Reacher, much as I love the books, is that they a lot of them have quite interchangeable action thriller titles, and it's quite hard now, Chris. I see what you're looking like, but come on. Stick with me for a minute. It's quite hard sometimes to remember which one is which. Let's be perfectly honest. Try me. Well, no, I can't remember. You can probably remember. You could tell me anything and I'd be like, all right, sounds good. So you can't tell the difference between die trying without fail and worth dying for? No. Come on, Helen. <laughs> which is the one where he doesn't eat a yogurt? <laughs> the enemy, okay. I believe. Oh, you actually knew that. That's yeah. so wrong. Because the yogurt gets thrown through the air and he... He, he knows how far a yogurt pot would travel. <laughs> if you threw it through the air, he knows things like this. He's Jack Reacher, what can you say? Okay, if you want to join Graham, Andy, Timon, Miller Time and Locale, I believe they're, they're real names, uh, on the podcast Wall of Fame, uh, it couldn't be simpler. Send your question to us via Twitter, Facebook, email or Pigeon. Only one of those is edible though, so choose carefully. Uh, Twitter is, of course, at Empire Magazine. Hashtag is Empire Podcast. Facebook, we're Empire Magazine. And email is podcast at Empire Online. And the pigeon is Lord Cuthbert Featherington IV, I believe. So if you can find him, then do send him back to us. He's a lovely um, pigeon. He's a lovely pigeon. Uh, coming up, we have the first of our brace of interviews on this week's show. It's Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, the writers of Skyfall. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade have been writers and residents in the last five Bond films, which includes the last two Pierce Brosnan movies, and of course the Daniel Craig era kicking off with Casino Royale and finishing with Skyfall, two of the best Bond films ever, I would say. Skyfall marks possibly their last go in the Bond merry-go-round, and they popped in to talk to Nick Desemlian and myself about the work in the film and the franchise to date. We're joined in the pod booth uh, by the writers of Skyfall. Well, five Bond films now, isn't it? For you guys, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, welcome. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, we've been doing it for... 15 years Heavily, now, man no, and boy. Uh, <laughs> we're co-writers uh, on this one. Uh-huh. I mean, we've got John Logan as well. Uh, um, of course. Uh, how, does that, how does that work? Because you've had Paul Haggis as well on Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale. Mm. Are you in the same room at the same time? Are you writers on set? And does he does he take your draft and do his own spin on it? How does um, it work? Well, in... 
what's happened with with all of the ones that we've been involved with where another writer has come on is we've originated it and then something is you know changed and um um i remember once uh, the director's wife came on and did a polish which meant that we <laughs> yes uh, that must be very interesting uh, yeah so it's uh it's it's some it's it's always uh, what what's ha- what happened with this was we started it with Sam mm-hmm. and um, and then spent about a year getting it right and but at that point MGM was um, sort of moribund but we were working on this script and getting it right uh, and and but at the point that MGM sort of the bankruptcy was resolved mm-hmm. they then um, that's when they wanted to bring John Logan in Is there a sense that you're the uh, the Bond writers in residence as it were uh, or do you have to pitch for each gig as it comes along Oh you can never assume you're going to be doing the next one mm-hmm. that's for sure Uh they, we've been fortunate a couple of times. I mean, on Casino Royale, actually, we were hired to do uh, two. So that was Casino and Quantum were both uh, agreed at the time because we wanted to to kind of split the story. Yeah. And um, and since that was the the last book and the first book that we would <laughs> that Fleming uh, allow, would you know that we had access to, um, we wanted to make the most of it. By uh, by by dragging two films out of it, <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, so the way that worked was what happened was that Paul Haggis came on and polished what we did in in Casino Royale, mm-hmm. and whilst that was shooting, we we were out, you know, came out to the Bahamas and uh, were thrashing out what Quantum was going to be. Okay. Um, and it was very interesting because we could see the the exactly how it was working with Daniel and the way that the movie was how he was playing it so that did help have a an, us with our attitude towards the sequel but mm. quantum changed a lot from i mean casino and skyfall has been have been pretty close to uh, what we've we did uh yes quantum, yeah quantum changed a lot yeah um, because um, there was a story Daniel Craig said that uh, Quantum was affected by the writer's strike so you know, there was a draft that well yeah what, what happened was we did our version of it our, our draft and then Paul Haggis the studio wanted him to come on and, and do what he did and he sort of threw out a lot of our stuff mm. and kept the, some basic elements like the Siena sequence with the paleo mm. and um, the loose structure of it but changed it a lot um, and but the trouble was there wasn't there, actually there wasn't enough time for him to finish that process mm. before the writer's strike started so it was a, it was all unfortunate really because it wasn't a finished script that he handed in and um, yeah I mean if they'd have shot what we'd written originally they wouldn't have been a problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't seem to be able to learn from that but, uh. I, really, I really enjoyed the fact that there was a, kind of a two film story which is uh, kind of a new thing for Bond is Skyfall a break from that are you going to be returning to the quantum storyline no um, Skyfall is a break from it and it was in a way because Quantum of Solace was ended up it's quite a bleak film, mm. quite dark. And that was because it was resolving Bond's emotional problems to do with Vesper. Um, the opportunity was, let, let's let some light into it. And I think that's what Sam welcomed. It was actually, you were coming from a, a, a quite um, claustrophobic film in a way to, and then Sam was coming in to, to make a, a, a kind of bigger more celebratory sort of celebration of of Bond himself Uh, so a sort of classic Bond film and and so we were certainly never thinking we deal with Quantum as an organisation or Mr White and all of those things they're still potentially out there if Mm. anyone wants to pick them up and run with them because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Kim Newman in the uh, Empire Review of Skyfall said that there's a sense in the movie because it deals with the sense of history it deals with the sense of, of Bond being old and a lot of time having elapsed from the previous movie four years in real world uh, but I don't know how many years between Quantum 
and Skyfall in Bond world. Um, <laughs> there is a sense that, that it, it's almost a Doctor No to Die Another Day. Those 20 movies have happened for this Bond. Is that something that you were you were driving at? And in that case, is there an idea that maybe this Bond has taken care of Quantum in the in the, in the interim between uh, Quantum and Skyfall? Well, uh, you can you can think what you like about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if they want to bring Quantum back, it will come back. Uh, yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I think it, in a sense, it, yeah, he's got the baggage. He's got that baggage, but we've felt that actually by the end of Quantum, he's been through a hell of a lot, and he he is. It's almost like he's a veteran, but at the end of that, in mm. a sense. So, even though it's ironic, really, because it started off with Casino as his his coming of age. It was Bond twenty one. No mm. one, no one actually spotted that. <laughs> he comes of age, and um, and then there was a sort of accelerated. I don't know what the word is. It's sort of, you know, it's the, not very good with words. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry about it anyway. <laughs> No, it's a, a sort of accelerated aging in that in that movie sure, yeah. somehow, and uh, so Kim Newman's theory may be correct, but uh, we didn't realise it. Okay, is this an insight, by the way, into how you two guys work in the room? Where you know? he insults me, <laughs> yeah. and I and I uh, laugh Except it off. Yeah. Robert yeah. Robert goes, "Oh, there's a there's a word. What's the word?" And then you insult him, and that's <laughs> and that's how it works. <laughs> yes. How do you work in the in the room together? We try to, if it's a room, we try to be at other ends of it. Um, <laughs> we actually don't, I mean, we see each other a couple of times a week, but we write separately. Okay. Uh, we, we meet up and work out what we're going to do. And then we go off and do it separately and email things to each other and they get rewritten and rewritten and, you know. Okay. So, so, so finally get there. So no one person can claim authorship of a particular line or a particular scene or... Oh, you still remember what you did. <laughs> Can you uh, remember who came up with the title? Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, Rob came up with the title. Well, I mean, not not I as a title, not as a title. No. He came up with the, the name of the house. Uh, right. Yeah, um, that was a sort of... Well, the interesting thing is that the whole third act was a thing that came up in the last two weeks when we were... We were having to hand the script in for it to be read by MGM as they came out of the problem so it had to and but we had a completely different third act and had never been happy with it and then we had this idea of you know what bond does is effectively go it alone with her and kidnap her and mm. take her to this place that he would never go back to under any other circumstances and that seemed to really fit the idea of going back to the old ways kind of thing and you know Fleming was always a big fan of of um, John Buchan, and he had a novel called Green Mantle, mm -hmm. which was a, an espionage novel. And I was that was fascinating. It's the name of a house, mm -hmm. and I found that sort of thing interesting. There's some odd ha names for houses around, and so we were looking for a name for this house that had to be like Mandalay. Like Mandela, yeah. exactly. There's, it's evocative, and you don't really know what it means. And um, it was two o'clock in the morning, and the script had to go off, and I just <laughs> typed Skyfall. So it sort of fell out of the sky, actually. <laughs> and I never thought that that would end up as the title of the movie. Mm. Um, uh, but um, it obviously struck a chord. But if, if we'd thought that the name of the house would be the name of the film and the name of the, the song. Mm, we'd have talked about it a, bit, a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you'd have done a three-syllable uh, house name. Yeah. Like Mandalay, that's, that's, yeah, that's pretty exactly. good, It's actually. the first two-syllable uh, Bond title, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Must be fun. Uh, well, some people find that interesting. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm interested. It must be fun seeing songs written about, written around the, these titles that you guys yeah, it's, it's bizarre, and I'm, not, I'm still not sure about the... Uh, legal position as far as uh, royalties actually because uh, also Die Another Day was something that came out of my mouth and uh, Barbara Broccoli said mm, that could work as a title In and then Madonna you know right. so, so, so I, you haven't seen Penny One of any royalties from Die Another Day the not song, for the, the song, song. Okay, no. yeah. my, there may not have been many <laughs> 
If you want more from Purvis and Wade, the rest of that fascinating interview can be found on our second and last Skyfall Spoiler Special Podcast, which should be up along with this podcast. Uh, Ali's shaking his head. I'm nodding, I'm nodding. You're nodding, you're nodding. With the haunted look of a man who's edited a lot of these recently. I'll be, I'll be up at six in the morning, but I'll be <laughs> bloody up online. So you better bloody listen to it, right? Uh, and be warned, we come with the spoiler territory on that one to a major degree, but they do reveal some very interesting tidbits about the evolution of Skyfall, so please check that one out. Uh, and let's move on now to the week's movie news. Uh, Helen, what do you got? Where was it? Teaser, poster and trailer online. And I'm a little bit worried. I've been keeping the faith on this one a little bit. You know, there's been a lot of uh, worry about it, a lot of talk given seven weeks uh, of reported reshoots. <laughs> Drew Goddard and Damon Lindelof both being parachuted in to rewrite the last act of the film. You know, these are not great signs for any film, but I was confident that whatever they were doing was going to make it better. And I, I remain hopeful that that's the case. However, my hopes have taken something of a beating because I was not wildly impressed by what I've seen so far. Now we should point out this has been recorded before the full teaser trailer has Which been released might be wonderful. on the yes. internet and you'll be listening to it after the teaser trailer has gone up but that's just assume for the sake of saying that the 30 seconds we've seen so far is indicative of the rest of the trailer and go! <laughs> well yes Here, here's the thing Fast Zombies now I'm not one of these zombie fanboys who's all like eh, Fast Zombies I hate the Dawn of the Dead remake because I thought that was quite a fun film actually. I like the Dawn of the Dead yeah. remake. But uh, fast zombies in this case I mean the whole point right is that you know billions of people worldwide get struck down by this virus that it starts off as a creeping menace and erupts into a full-blown plague at a certain point and and the book does this brilliantly it's it, honestly one of my favorite books I really really loved it so I'm coming into this slightly prejudiced but if these zombies were fast if you have billions of fast zombies no one's going to survive. How's anyone going to survive this? And what we have now in these in these images that we've seen so far is something that looks a little bit, and I hesitate to say it, but it does, I am legend. Mm. Mm. And I think that's what we all kind of hoped it wouldn't be. Or at least I did. I think as well. We hope a lot of movies won't be. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of with you in this one. I, I love the book. And my problem with, uh, with this, and they, they've, they've changed the book a lot, and apparently an early J. Michael Straczynski draft was very faithful to the book, mm. which has multiple characters and multiple tales being told from different points of view. And there's no one central character necessarily. There's a UN there's investigator. A, yeah, there's an investigator yeah. who kind of goes around after the the fight back. But he's more and of a, he's kind a, of yeah, he's just recording receiver, the tales. Yeah. Um, so he's he's kind of the only thread going through the the books. Which is why, to be perfectly honest, uh, if it, if it were up to me, I would have made World War Z a TV show mm. and made Walking Dead a movie. But hey, it's World War Z. Sorry, I and it's it Walking D. Let's get, let's, get, let's get it right. Um, yeah, no, I, I, my, yeah, kind of with you on that one. But I, what I do like about the the, the 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 footage we've seen so far and what everyone said so far about this film is that it's trying to show a zombie apocalypse on a truly global scale and with mm. millions of zombies. We've never seen this before, and yeah. I'm not entirely sure the CG's been up to scratch so far from what we've seen it might be brilliant once it happens. I'm more worried about the Mark Forster uh, element of this movie. I I can't ever remember even barely liking the film the, the man's made so oh, Finding Neverland, Finding Neverland is awesome I'm going to disagree with you there, <gasps> but, uh, okay but uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what really freaked me out about this is that when I was watching it on YouTube the brief clip that we've seen at this point it had the advert for the Chanel number no. 5 come up before <laughs> I think that's a, good, that's a good product. <laughs> the world turns and we turn to zombies with it. So I pressed play and went, whoa, they are going left field. This is nothing like... Oh, it's an ad. Okay. <laughs> it's the mask for stench of, of, Rotting of flesh. dead flesh. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wonder about the parallels with Robopocalypse, which is another apocalyptic mm. tale um, with the, in the book, a number of global strands. Yeah, it's a and, similar structure in the book. Yeah, I was going to say, and I wonder how Spielberg and Goddard, again, who you can see why he might have been brought in to help with this one, because he's obviously been working on Robo-Apocalypse. There's talk of the, the, the structure of that changing for the film as well. How they're going to do that. I think one of the things, like you say, that's really fascinating about it is it is tr truly a global kind of epic scale mm. um, where each character feels a little expendable within the greater whole and I'd love to see that and also with fast zombies you're not going to be able to replicate some of the more memorable sequences from the book I mean there's a sequence set in Japan mm. where this guy is basically trying to get down his, his apartment building if it was fast zombies and, and the walls are quite thin in that apartment building he could just tear through the walls and he'd be devoured within seconds and where's your tension I just don't I don't quite 
get what it doesn't quite work for you know the Paris underground scenes either if if they're fast zombies and they're therefore stronger they you know why would they still be in the catacombs you know and that is one of the scariest things I've ever read in my life Mm. I just it's not that they're fast zombies on the basis of this footage they're like Usain Bolt the the speed at which these things are moving it's beyond Dawn of the Dead remake it's beyond 28 Days Later it's like these guys are on drugs or something yeah uh Sorry, someone just had a shot because I tried to look over you. Um, yeah, James and I had an argument about this in the office yesterday because I actually said the phrase, uh, it's physiologically impossible for them to be fast zombies. And, <laughs> and he went, you're an idiot. And But <laughs> the point stands, I guess. But it's, it's true. I mean, you can kind of buy the fact that, when, you know, the fact well, that when zombies <laughs> in the Romero films, they're slow moving because they're decomposing, they're putrefying, they're, you know, they're just not fast. They don't have much motivation to move. They, they can't move. There's no blood going through their bodies. So how can and they possibly move fast and you can kind of buy it in 28 days later because they're not zombies they're infected human beings but I just think what if you know if a fast zombie you're, you tear your Achilles tendon so what we and really the fact want is you tear your Achilles tendon doesn't matter whether you're a zombie or you're, you're a real life human being you ain't gonna be moving far so we want to see just, zombies warming up warming yeah. up at the beginning maybe. <laughs> it's just not very realistic <laughs> doing some light stretching <laughs> what we really want is stationary zombies or just bite. have to walk around them for the duration of the that movie that will happen in time see this is the thing with slow moving zombies all you need to do is essentially find a safe place lots of food a toilet or a window you can throw your business out of and just hold up until they start decomposing enough so that all they can do is just kind of crawl after you and go <laughs> every time they see a human being and yeah there'll always be kind of new ones but you can take care of the new ones because there won't be that many after a while so you just gotta wait it out just with fast zombies you're screwed mm-hmm. screwed mm-hmm. so where, where's the tension we want Bill Murray Bill Murray zombies Bill Murray <laughs> golfing zombies <laughs> three billion Bill Murray zombies would be amazing I think we've spent way more than enough time on World uh, War B oh. <laughs> 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 oh World War B uh, bed World War bed um, that's amazing but who knows the film could be brilliant I, I am still going to be hopeful I'm still going to go see it I'm still really really wishing that they put that book up on screen Every day is Christmas Eve at Empire. Every day is Christmas Eve. Okay. I'm just worried by the shape of the present under the tree at the moment. That's all. It doesn't look like a bike. It's moving and it's making <laughs> noises and there's blood seeping out the end. Phil. It's Martin Sheen. It's Martin Sheen. <gasps> What's he doing in Helen's bedroom? Going metal. Oh, dark. This Christmas brings another video game to movie adaptation. It's Need for Speed. Mm-hmm. There's been some casting announcements. Now, if you're familiar with the uh, the Electronic Arts video game, there's been innumerable is that a word? Innumerable. Thank you. Versions of the game down the years, uh, different generations of it. Obviously, a racing game doesn't really translate to the screen, so they've they've kind of hung uh, a plot around it, which involves Aaron Paul, Jesse from Breaking Bad, playing a guy who's been framed. It's a bit death race. Um, f- <laughs> for the murder of someone, uh, for a close friend. He's come out of prison and he's hungering. He's hungering. Is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not happening. He's, he's, he's hungry for revenge on the people that, 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 that set him up. I hope that's a line in the film. I'm hungry I'm for hungering. revenge. Um, and it's added Dominic Cooper um, oh, okay. to his cast. And he's going to be playing the, I guess you could say, the Brian Cranston... <laughs> Walter White in Drive kind of part as the as the mechanic who helps um, Aaron Paul's character to uh, to soup up his car. So we're expecting a lot of violence, a lot of fast cars, a lot of chases. Drive meets Death Race, perhaps. Imogen Poots has been added, which is obviously promising. We love her around here. Always good to see, and we do indeed. And uh, always good to see Brits added to, to big films. I don't know why. It's why good, is that? It's, just, it's, it's good. good. It's, it's nice. Just, it's good for the end. It's nice. Patriotic fervor. Yeah. I think they saw Cooper in uh, Captain America and just went, well, he can do the whole techie thing a bit. Can't he? Good point. And frankly, he deserves something decent after Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. So who so knows? Let's have a moment so, of silence for that film. Right. I think what's interesting about this film is that this feels to me like a wannabe Fast and Furious they want a franchise that sounds great and Need for Speed has a great name mm. yeah. nicking it obviously from uh, another film but it has potential to be something and I like it because it isn't tied down by any characters or plot or whatever they can do whatever they want with it I played Need for Speed a lot when I was growing up Hot Pursuit I was a big fan of and it's just racing 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 it's just simple arcade fun so I kind of like it it's theirs to cock up but there's no you know plot that they have to stick to there are no fanboys they'll be like oh but in the fourth game this person says this and that doesn't make sense or that this is just a racing game so I hope they have fun with it uh, two people wrote in this week and I didn't include their questions but they both basically asked have, why have there never been any good video game movies or adaptations 
This is a huge debate we've mm. had in the office. This is one of those features that I've wanted to write forever. But the reason why is because people view them as cash cows. I, I think it's probably around about it. What you need is somebody with a huge amount of passion, a lot of knowledge about the subject, who knows the game. You also need a studio, a game studio, that isn't that precious about what their franchise is. By all means, don't let it go too far. But when you make a film, you've got to make a film. And the film's for film goers. The film isn't for gamers. You've got to be very, very careful not to either go too far on one side, which is catering to all the nods and their hat tips and whatever, and forgetting that you're making a movie. It's a visual medium. You can't drive it. You can't control it. It has to have characters, plot, something to connect with, and not just swish car or hot looking girl. It's a very difficult proposition. And I, I, I gather and I feel that it's a breaking point. There's a tipping point with Wreck-It Ralph, which we're going to talk about um, when it comes out in the UK in February. Mm-hmm. It's out in the US now, and it, it made 50 million in its opening weekend. And that's all about gaming culture, and it's all about the love of the game. And everyone plays games. But for some reason, Hollywood hasn't been able to get its head around it in a way that feels like a good film. I think so far, the game films that have worked have been the ones that aren't based on games. So it's been stuff like Crank. It's been stuff like, to an extent, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Films that talk about games and the love of games and why people like games, but don't actually base themselves on an existing property. And Wreck-It Ralph is is kind of an example of that as well. It's very much rooted in that culture, but it's not beholden to anything that it, it has to kind of get in there. And I think, you know, I think we're getting to the point now where it is changing and we could see in the next few years I think a good game movie the first good game movie perhaps Need for Speed perhaps good, Need for Speed good cast uh, directed by one of the guys who co-directed Act of Valor which isn't a hugely positive sign but <laughs> Christmas Eve every day I believe Spielberg's involved in some level he has a car he has a car <laughs> so therefore he will like this film Ali what do you got for us I've got some Star Wars rumour roundup. No. And by rumour, I mean the rumouriest rumour ever. This is barely news, but hey, Star Wars, let's roll. This is from late last week, uh, which is Mark Hamill discussing a conversation he had with uh, Lord George of Lucas, and he was saying how they had a nice chat over lunch. No, stop the presses. Get out. He was having a chat with uh, the old Marky H and said, "Uh, by the way, I'm going to be doing, or I'm planning... Seven, eight, and nine. So, how about that? And Mark Hamill was slightly shocked by this because he was expecting a conversation about the TV show that was rumoured there might be some t- live action TV show or something along those lines in between one, two, three, and four, five, six. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what he had to say. He, he also said that George Lucas was keen to say, You can't tell anyone. Uh, and Lucas was only talking about writers discussing Mm -hmm. writers already at that point and the fact that he definitely wouldn't be directing so that's one thing as I say that was very spurious we've also got the rumour and this is from a reasonably reliable source I don't know him that well but you know Jeff Boucher I've never met the man but I have had the the pleasure of, of being in the same room as him He's very handsome. Very handsome. Very handsome. Now He, he gives movie journalists a bad name. Does he? We should all be pudgy and, and look like me, basically, but he's very handsome. But he has been talking about how the three main cast, so Carrie, Mark and Harrison, are reportedly open mm-hmm. for the possibility of returning. So there you have it. So there you have that, it, that's, that's the whole of that story. That's, that's, that's the whole of that one. Okay. I, I, I just, I don't know how Mark Hamill... Who I don't know if you've ever met Mark Hamill, but he's a, he's a wonderful guy. He's very loquacious. I don't know how he held that secret for because he's <laughs> he's he, you know. Uh, and then in my brief interviews with him, I interviewed him in Cannes a few years ago. And he's very indiscreet, so I don't know how he managed to hold on to this secret for so long. If I'd known about this, I mean, if you've been privy to this at all, it's like you can't tell anyone. We're we're going to do Star Wars seven, eight, and nine. Okay, yeah, sure. I'd be tweeting about it immediately. I'd be Facebooking. I'd be DMing people. I'd be going, um, Helen, can you get me a cup of tea? By the way, to do a Star Wars 789. I just don't know how you could do that. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how they kept the whole um, Disney yeah. Lucas film thing a secret. I mean, the number Nobody of people knew. that are involved in that process. Thousands. I guess lawyers aren't quite as sort of, you know, yeah. indiscreet. indiscreet as we are. But still, it's impressive. You know, Apparently, Lucas didn't even know. <laughs> he just woke up and somebody gave him a piece of paper and he scribbled <laughs> on it. Yeah. He'll sign anything. Uh, there's another rumour as well, isn't there? This is about Matthew Vaughn being one of the, one of the front runners for episode seven. Uh, hey, who said that on last week's podcast? Was it? It was me. Oh my God. So this, if, I'm like Nostradamus. You started the rumour. Wait, you started the rumour? I started a rumour. <laughs> Why is that? People picked it up, ran with it. 
No, I don't have. You know, I'm not Jeff Boucher. I don't have that sort of power and influence. I'm not that handsome. I'm not that. I'm not nearly that handsome. He's got a commanding voice as well, Boucher. Oh, when he talks, people just okay. Listen. Chris what is going is on. Getting Chris? Weird. What's happening? Getting sorry, weird. Sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, Matthew Vaughn. Yes, Matthew Vaughn. Yes. So what do you think of this? What do you think of this news? That, and this that, is because people are kind of joining the dots that are quite a way away from each other. I'm the same dots out. I joined. He, he left a Fox project, Days of Future Past, about a week before the Star Wars news was announced. He's a massive Star Wars fan. He's a sort of jack of all trades. He's done a lot of films in different genres and different styles, so he could kind of he could handle Star Wars. Mm. And he's not backwards and coming forwards. So I think he would be a man who's very happy to throw his hat in the ring. So people are putting two and two together and getting episode 90. seven. Yeah. Well, if he was, you know, this project's obviously been incubating for quite a long time now. I mean, according to. The story, you know, the story that, that Ali was was telling us about um, that lunch that happened earlier this year, but it's you know predates that. Why would why would Matthew Vaughan have have committed himself to an X Men project at that point? Why is it taking so long for him to I step think, away from I, it? I don't think anyone's suggesting that he he knew that early in the year, um, or even actually, I don't think I don't think anyone's actually saying that that's the reason he left X Men. Are no. we? No, I think no. it's just that I'm hey, just he's, he's free, they're free. Yeah. Let's get together and work this crazy stuff out. Yeah. And like again, it's a rumor. It's a rumor. There were, there were strong rumors about Brad Bird doing it, and strong rumors about now Matthew Fawn doing it. And uh, Sam Mendes ruled himself out last week. That's yeah. it. We've we've been making our efforts yeah. to to rule people in around. Yeah. So Gareth Edwards is also ruling Gareth himself Evans. out. Gareth Evans. Gareth By the way, guys, Sorry. I'm out. Oh, okay. I, I won't be doing it. You're Ali, out. Gosh, yep. that Sorry. was a disappointment. Can you edit a it? Shock? At least. I could think about it, but then I probably won't have time. So I'm going to say no to that as well. Wow. Do you know who you think would be a great director for episode seven? Who's that? Chef Boucher. <laughs> Chris? Chris, we're back here in the room. Hmm? Back What's in the happening? room, Chris. What? Oh, God. Oh, God. Anyway, yes. God, wife, wife. Coming up, we talk to Mr. Mark Miller about kick ass and other animals. Oh, Boucher. Mark Miller is perhaps the highest profile writer in the comic book world. His work at DC and Marvel has led to stone cold classics like Red Sun, Civil War and The Ultimates and his work in his own comic book line bashfully titled Miller World has led to the likes of Wanted, Super Crooks, Nemesis, Superior, Secret Service and of course Kick-Ass. The latter has already been turned into a major motion picture with a sequel in the way while the others are all looking likely to hit the big screen at some point. Miller's involvement in Hollywood affairs intensified recently when he was appointed Chief Creative Consultant on all Fox's Marvel movies, including the X-Men and Fantastic Four franchises. He popped into the pod with recently to talk to me about Kick-Ass 2 and his work at Fox. Bear in mind, though, this was recorded before Matthew Vaughn dropped out of Days of Future Past to be replaced by Brian Singer and to be reported on by Jeff Boucher. Enjoy the interview. I'm delighted to be joined in the pod booth by Mr. Mark Miller, or as Americans uh, call you, because I spoke to Joe Carnahan yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, we had a big party out in LA. All oh, right, he had. Uh, we had Empire. We we launched our uh, US iPad edition out there, and Joe came along to the party, and he called you on the red carpet. Conversation came around to you. Yeah, as I imagine, it frequently does. Was it and one of those kind of top ten hottest guys? Like it was most beautiful men in the, the the film business. It was basically yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, yeah. It was Shag Mary Kill. <laughs> <laughs> Joe had probably be all three in, in, in the worst order. <laughs> and we're off to a good start. I thought we get that. I thought we get it out of the way. Nice name. Um, he calls you Millar. It sounds good. I like that. The trouble is, if he said it in the UK, like "Hello, I'm Mark Millar," mm. you get your head kicked in, especially in Glasgow, <laughs> you know, because it is so pretentious. But when Americans say it, it gives me a level of sophistication that I don't have in real life. Right. So I'm going to try and eventually phase it into Sir Mark Millar. It sounds, it sounds <laughs> Sir Mark Millar. Yeah. Sir Mark Millar. For services to the comic book industry, anyone who's read Kickass Two, yeah, knows that it is a very, very dark, violent, subversive comic book. Yeah. That does a lot of horrible things to a lot of people, mm-hmm. and. How faithful can the film possibly be? Can it- it's, it's it's insanely faithful. It's actually almost scene for scene. The book, really, you know, yeah. I mean, I think what what kind of happened that was interesting is the book of Kickass is split in two. Mm-hmm. Um, Kickass two is actually like the Hit Girl series, yeah. which is five issues, and then uh, seven issues of Kickass two itself. So when you actually read it in context, you know, like 
um, it seems a little less dark because the hit girl side of yeah. it was quite light. So you, you're sort of prepared for the uh, dark half of it, you know. But if you Kick Ass 2, the end of it was released first uh, mm-hmm. just because of scheduling problems that we had. So it kind of seems a little darker when you see it. But when you see it actually balanced as a screenplay, have you read the screenplay yet? Have you, I haven't read the screenplay yet, no. But the, the screenplay has actually got enough light and shade that the really awful stuff that happens you can deal with because there's been enough laughs. It's kind of like Tarantino, you know, that Tarantino's amazing at having you laugh in one minute and then someone's head gets blown over the back of a, a car window you know that kind of thing and, and it's it's like that the awful stuff is balanced so you don't want to slit your wrists at the end of it and it's kind of, it's kind of like the, the first movie is it's actually got some really hardcore stuff in it it does you know? yeah um, but you come out of it feeling really great and it's really mad because you've just seen a little girl eviscerate all these people you've seen the this the, you know the sea bomb was dropped and all that you know limbs were flying everywhere and yet you come out of it feeling like you've seen the Goonies or something you, you, know, you actually come out thinking <laughs> oh that was lovely you know and, and it's the same Kick-Ass 2 will be the same you know maybe go it's a little darker I think but we always sort of planned it that way the idea was going to be it was like Empire Strikes Back to Star Wars mm-hmm. you know so the world gets bigger and the world gets darker and it becomes just a little bit more interesting because if you think about it the minute you put on a mask and take out two sticks and go and try and get yourself into trouble you're going to end up in some bad places you know and that's yeah. kind of what happens you know inevitably you're going to die you know so that's the difference <laughs> between Spider-Man and even Batman you know Batman really is supposed to be a, a realistic superhero but it is preposterous you know yeah. even if he's a billionaire one bullet is enough to finish him off really you know, yeah. and one night that's going to happen. You know, so one of the things that really makes it work and it sells crazy numbers. I mean, we we sell insane numbers of the books, and I think the reason it is resonating with people is because when you turn that page, that could happen. You know, somebody could shoot kick ass in the head, and he's dead. That's it. Mm. There's no spider sense warning him it's going to happen. There's no resurrection. He won't, you know, be taken over by the Phoenix Force and sort of be revived. You know, <laughs> ten pages later, he's just dead. That's it. And I think that can happen at any moment. And the nice thing about creator own comics, as opposed to Marvel and DC books, is that you there's no big corporation telling you you can't do anything. Yeah. So re- I, I love the the idea that like Hit Girl could die in the next issue you pick up. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I'm. I'm going to end the whole thing with book three and my agent's going crazy because he's saying no no this is a cash cow you know keep it going do book eight you know but I've always believed you know just stick to what you planned you know and whenever I, I started Kick-Ass I had it always in my mind Kick-Ass 3 was the end and I knew the last page when I started page one you know mm-hmm. um and I had a sort of very broad skeleton for the whole thing. It was a, a hero's journey, you know. Star Wars is always what I come back to and stuff, you know. In Star, you know, the first Kickass was the like the the Tatooine farm boy, you know, sort of like learning the ropes. He was idealistic and hoping for the best. The second one is he's sort of getting trained up to be a bit of a badass. And the third one, he's full Jedi kind of thing. But mm. that, so that was the hero's journey that he was going across. But there will be absolutely no more Dave Luziski after uh, after book three. That's it, you know, unless I get a huge tax bill. <laughs> <laughs> and then there'll be five, six, seven, eight, nine. You know? So we're simply in uh, Kick-Ass 3, we can expect them to team up with a bunch of teddy bears. Is that, <laughs> is that roughly where we're going with this one? Imagine a, 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 sort of a, non, a non-shite, no-shite bits version of, uh, <laughs> of Jedi. There are no shite bits in Return of the Jedi. You know, and the funny thing is, I'm quite forgiven a Jedi because I know everybody always kind of says, oh yeah, that's the ones where we all went you know, to kiddie and everything. But I remember absolutely loving it. And uh, the, you know, I wasn't keen on the Ewoks. I remember thinking that's a bit annoying. I hated the song and everything but but that opening bit where Luke's rescued mm. uh, you know is literally I think the best bit maybe in the whole series like, I really loved that I remember thinking this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life you know so and, and the, the end of Jedi is so satisfying and all that I just think that was back when those guys could do no wrong you know those, yeah. three, those three films are great it's, it's interesting again and you're saying that, that Kick-Ass 2 is, is, is very very faithful because some of the stuff that happens in that I mean Red Mist being rechristened the motherfucker and then yeah. living up to the title and that's by, all there, by doing it. horrendous things to people yeah uh, including this is the uh, without going into too, you know, too much detail uh, he his entrance in the comic book is essentially he, it's not a good day for a bunch of eight year olds <laughs> can you can you still do that in the movie and get away with it there are some things you know you I don't want to do any spoilers you know because it's such pivotal scenes but um, every scene is there but the stuff that's quite hardcore is slightly toned down in places you right, know yeah. and it's just when you see it happening to real people it is slightly different from seeing it on a page you know? yeah. so so it'd be almost too much it's kind of almost like the volume at 10 all the time you do have to sort of ramp it down a little bit so that then it's impactful when something happens but every scene that's in the book is there but maybe a couple of times played a slightly different way you know something going off camera or whatever you know that kind of stuff so Um, it, it's, it's harsh I mean I, I actually watched uh, 40 minutes of edits the other day I mean 40 minutes of the movie is now edited and you know sitting there like watching a film so I'm sitting in the edit suite for quite a lot of this week just 
pretty much watching Kick-Ass 2 with a temp soundtrack and everything right. and it's, it's phenomenal you know and uh, and I am surprised how close they stayed because some of that stuff is hard but it just works you know and Jeff's a really really good director and he's a good writer and uh, I think Matthew just he's got a good eye for this stuff you know mm. he, he pegged uh, him a while back and, and then engaged him round about the end of 2010 you know, to, he was a bit, bit of a left field choice wasn't he yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know him at all until then, but Matthew says, like, just trust me, this guy's really good. He'd pitched Matthew something a while back, and uh, he says, no, this guy's one to watch, you know, he's going to be good. Now, I think this will be a big breakout for him. I mean, mm. I, I think after Kick-Ass 2, um, it'll be almost hard to hang on to him for Kick-Ass 3, because I think this will be his breakout, and he'll be able to do anything he wants. I know I know he's got pet projects of his own, and I know of guys who are after him now already, you know, just for the buzz that's coming out of the edit suite on Kick-Ass 2, which is really exciting. Bloody hell. I mean, it, it was a sense that uh, Kick-Ass 2 had to happen ASAP, mainly because of Chloe Moretz. Um, well, to some extent, but I, I have no problem with the characters getting a wee bit older, you know, because yeah. it's not like The Simpsons, you know, it's like everybody doesn't have to remain 10 and everything, you know, so I just think, in a way, um, I think it's quite good to have a couple of years, like most most sequels are two to three years after the original. You yeah. know, that's the way they, t- they tend to flow, and this is three years after the original, which feels fine. And the gag of someone at four foot eight dropping the C-bomb, you know, was done in the first movie, so we can't repeat that gag. You know, that idea of her being 10 or 11 isn't that funny anymore. You know, it's, it's funny for one film, you know, but you don't want to go hang over two and just repeat the same gags of the first movie. You know, you've got to take it into a whole new dimension. So I, what I find more interesting is where this has gone now. It's what I try, I try to do in the book, um, and I think it'll actually work very well in film, which is you've seen this girl who's an unstoppable killing machine who's mm. been trained by a slightly odd father you know to, to be so dangerous um, in the sequel okay she can kill gangsters and stuff like that but what happens when she goes into school and somebody says oh you're kind of fat I don't like your clothes your hair's stupid yeah. and all that how does she deal with that and that added a whole new dynamic that wouldn't have been in the first film because she's grown up in this th- environment where um, she, she can she can she never has to deal with verbal hostility, you know, and she's compl- she's got no skills for dealing with that at all. So the idea of somebody as badass as Hit Girl suddenly being in that that setup is suddenly interesting because you're seeing her in her secret identity, incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, and so it's uh, Aaron's back, Christmas Plas is back, yeah, Chloe's back, and the uh, the big name guest star in this one, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. So exciting. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, it's funny it was you have your little wish list you know it's like Nick Cage in the first one there was other guys that had been talked about for that there was Mark Wahlberg I think there was George Clooney at one point Johnny Depp I think was Brad Pitt you know just loads and loads of these kind of names all bandied around and some of them it got quite far I think Matthew McConaughey actually met with Matthew and they they discussed it which would have been really interesting actually Mm. you know it's uh, he had some good ideas for it and I I actually think Matthew McConaughey's quite an interesting actor he's one of those guys who's quite an underrated guy I think so you know Matthew was quite excited about that for a minute and then Nick Cage came in and we kind of now, you know, can't imagine anyone except Nick Cage playing that role, you know. And it's the same with this. There was so many guys discussed, you know, to play this Colonel character, you know, who's the kind of leader of the super team that Kick-Ass joins. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's a born-again Christian, ex-mafia leg-breaker, you know, who's out sort of cleaning up the streets because he doesn't trust the cops. And he's got an Alsatian that he's trained to eat testicles, you know. And, like, uh, <laughs> and that was actually my favourite moment of the shooting the other day. Like, I was in one of the, the fight scenes and there's a dog trainer woman who has trained the dog in the film to go for testicles you know and like and she's standing like trying to get the dog excited you know to run and jump and bite on a um, this cod piece that she's wearing you know that's you know Christmas Platz is going to be wearing in the movie and I thought how are we going to untrain this dog so let's talk now about the uh, the fox job yeah which is uh, still relatively new for you but what exactly does it involve um it's um it's a funny one actually because uh, the thing I like about this job is it's allowing me to kind of like sit back, surround myself with brilliant people, and get the credit. Well, I'm really not doing the, the hard job here, which is you know the 18 months that someone is directing yeah. a film or the screenwriter, you know, doing constant revisions and things like that, just getting something perfect or the actors who are up at five o'clock in the morning and taking protein shakes during the night you know but um, I'm getting all the plus sides of it which is really nice you know I'm getting to sit in and all, all this stuff you know and sort of give my opinions and I, I came about uh, for a couple of reasons like one of my friends Joe Carnahan mm-hmm. he you know has been talking to folks about a couple of projects and uh, Joe was saying to them Mark was involved uh, with Marvel for years you know I mean I worked at Marvel for quite a long time a lot of the stuff that was used 
in the Avengers movie, you know, the source material was a book I'd yeah. done called uh, The Ultimates, you know, and he was saying, look, Mark could be a really good resource for you. Um, and the Fox guys had read The Ultimates and everything. They said, if if he can bring that same sort of thing, you know, to f- the Fox um, line of uh, Marvel characters, then, uh, you know, that, that could be really beneficial because Fox have had quite a kind of rough ride from the fans over the years. You know, for every X1 and X2, there's like, a, you know, two or three bad. There's an X3 and you know, Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's funny because you know you've got Kevin Feige and Joss Whedon doing such an amazing job over yeah. at Marvel Studios, but the cooler characters weirdly are at Fox. You know, um, mm-hmm. like the X Men is the crown jewels really at Marvel. You know, and the reason Fox bought them whenever Marvel was in bankruptcy, you know, when they got this stuff, um, was because it was the best stuff. You know, they came in and went for Fantastic Four, Daredevil, and X Men. Sony came and got Spider Man, and the stuff that Marvel. Um, you know, had left was actually the characters that people didn't think would translate into film, and that's since been proven brilliantly wrong. You know, mm. with with the Avengers movie, so folks are thinking, well, you know, we're sitting on some really awesome things here. There is a another side of the Marvel universe here. You know, let's maybe try and get some cohesive going. So they brought me in to sort of oversee that, really. You know, so to work with the writers and directors and suggest, um, you know, new ways we could take this stuff and 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 maybe new properties that could spin out of it because the X-Men alone feels like a universe of itself there's so oh, it many is, yeah. characters in there there's so many great potential spin-off characters so they, they, they asked me to come and work out a plan so unfortunately at this stage I can't get too specific I do have a plan I've got a, a three year plan three mm-hmm. to four year plan of where things could go but you know I'll be working with guys like Matthew and so on and Josh Trank who's the new director yep. on Fantastic Four and um, just figuring out how everything can kind of work together not contradict each other but I also at the same time don't want to make it too much of a mess either you know I don't want everybody showing up in everybody's films and stuff you know but what what my dream is right as a fan my dream is that when you go and see any Marvel movie it all feels as if they're taking place in the one universe like when you pick up a Marvel comic yeah. you know and that doesn't necessarily mean that you want it's a pick up an X-Men comic and see Spider-Man in it and all that you know every issue you know and it shouldn't be like that in the movies either but you should feel as if they're all taking place in one big kind of cohesive place like Fox and Sony and Marvel I think should all be best friends you know and all kind of like take their uh, share of the responsibility and a lot of people will say oh I'd like it all back at one studio but I'll tell you why that's not a good idea the big thing is it cost right these things yeah. are ludicrously expensive you know I mean even an averagely priced one is 150 million dollars and they can now go upwards of 200 million quite easily so most studios are not going to do more than two or possibly three a year which means that you wouldn't be getting a Guardians of the Galaxy you wouldn't be getting Ant-Man and all these very interesting new projects what you'd be getting is everybody just doing if it was all at one studio you'd have Spider-Man X-Men and Avengers maybe happening all the time and that mm. would be it um, so I love the fact that there's three studios essentially at the moment, possibly four, um, you know, shouldering the financial burden of the Marvel Universe. And mm. and maybe at some point, I don't know, maybe five years down the line, I mean, this is me speaking very unofficially here, but maybe you'll get studios doing deals with each other and crossing certain characters over. Maybe all the studios get together and do a massive event movie. But I think you don't want to see that too much as well. You know, I like the idea of them all just being... You know, little self-sustaining things that when they do come together, it should be special. And if it does happen in five years, it doesn't happen again for another five or whatever. You know, so I actually think we've got the perfect thing right now. And because I'm friends with the Marvel guys, mm. um, you know, there's a good relationship there. There's no rivalry between Fox and Marvel or anything. You know, it's, uh, I feel as if we can all work in this, the, the same way. And and I think we've all got the same outlook. Like the Marvel vision is kind of very similar to my own vision for those characters, and I'm going to try and bring a lot of that to Fox too. Well, listen, Mark, I'll let you get back to Glasgow. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again. Thanks very much. Thanks if you'll have us. Thanks for the tea. I'll put, I'll put some clothes on next time. <laughs> Brilliant. Cheers, Mark. Thanks. See you. There you go, Mark Miller. Lovely chap, and I'm sure he'll be a regular visitor to the pod booth over the coming months. Okay, time to wind down this rodeo with the week's movie releases. It's a bit of a barren wasteland this week, frankly. Uh, the best movies out there remain Argo and Skyfall mm-hmm. I'd imagine but uh, let's tackle the new releases as best we can let's give it our best shot uh, starting with The Sapphires it's a musical tale of an all Aboriginal girl group who overcame racism to entertain the troops in Vietnam thoughts in this alley you've, you've seen this one haven't you this is a difficult one for me because the review that we have is a very positive one and the way the review is written I agree with what they say it is a very heartfelt very sweet story mm-hmm. it's very entertaining and there's a lot of love there it tells a very it's a true story so it's it's nice to have that I could sense a giant sized butt coming I have a butt the size of a very big butt uh, <laughs> currently in my possession well I, Sir Mix-a-Lot would be pleased he would be absolutely <laughs> chuffed good reference 
but unfortunately i personally did not connect with this i did not feel this i wanted to i love chris o'dowd but i didn't really get it i didn't i didn't really feel it I we found... should point out that chris o'dowd is in the film he's in the film <laughs> he's he just, he's a the... random reference to chris o'dowd i really like chris o'dowd by the way <laughs> chris o'dowd god i'm good chris o'dowd is the musical manager come alcoholic layabout that these four aborigine girls aborigine aboriginal girls aboriginal girls although i believe the term indigenous is preferred these days Okay, I do apologise. No, that's fine. That's fine. I just uh, I did a um, I hosted a press conference with uh, the cast and the director Wayne Blair a couple of weeks ago, and um, several people said several people asked questions Aboriginal and, and they said Indigenous. So I think that's the term they prefer. Okay, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong. But anyway, the four of them there are these four girls. Well, there are these three girls who live in a kind of a racist backwater Australia. Um, I hope they don't mind me saying sorry, Australia, and <laughs> they are all amazing singers, like really knockout singers. Yeah, and they want to do something with their lives they want to get out of this rut and when they walk into town people are abusive to them and treat them like second third fourth class citizens it's it's pretty horrible but they go to this kind of talent competition in a local hotel slash bar and chris o'dowd is the man with the mic there the compare the mc and he recognizes some extraordinary talent when he sees it and he combined with the magic power of a bit of paper that's clipped out of the local news bulletin see that there's an opportunity to go to Vietnam and entertain the troops for money and the experience of a lifetime this is the 1960s I'm so good at this I'm preparing everything so well I'm setting the scene anyway so (laughs) they fly off uh, to Vietnam and things happen naturally Vietnam is in the cuddliest place in the world Personally, I felt like the direction was a little bit pedestrian and things kind of just happened. There was a lot of potential here to make this a lot more polished and it felt quite rough around the edges to me. This is because I'm a cynic and I'm a bit of a grump and I'm aware (laughs) that people are going to watch this film and go, you know what, Ali, you're an absolute idiot because it's so sweet and lovely. But I can't help but say that it was a little bit shoddy at times for me. Well, it's quite perfunctorily directed, I would say. But it has an enormous amount of charm. And I think a lot of that goes down to the performances. Not just from Chris O'Dowd, who's fantastic as the sleazy, swaggering, drunk Irish manager who eventually has forms a relationship with the, the leader, if you will, of the, of the Sapphires. But the Sapphires themselves, and um, some of whom are, were in the original play in which the film is based, and the Sapphires play by Deborah Mailman, Jessica Mallboy, Shari Seppens, and Miranda Tapsell, and they have great voices and great personality and some very, very sparky dialogue back and forth. When the film gets serious and mawkish, it doesn't quite work, but I think... People are going to have a, a toe-tapping good time at the movies if they, go, if they go and see this one. Although it's probably one best reserved for maybe DVD. Although, who knows, who knows. But uh, I think at one point, especially after the Cannes Film Festival where it debuted uh, to widespread acclaim and Harvey Weinstein picked it up. And because Harvey Weinstein picked it up, suddenly people thought, is this an Oscar dark horse? But like the artist last year. And... Um, it's sadly it's it's fallen away somewhat because the quality of the movie just isn't there but Chris O'Dowd is very 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 good and uh, if he were a supporting character rather than the lead I say he would have a shot at maybe getting an Oscar nomination because he's very 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 good in this and shows sides to himself serious side to himself that he hasn't really shown before all in all though we gave it four stars and yeah I'd, I'd, I'd go with that it's, it is it is good fun it's something worth encouraging I think this movie's come out of nowhere and it's very very sweet and if you like the sound of it and yeah. I know I've not done it at a good round <laughs> you, you don't sound too positive one, but luckily I'm here so we're all good Thanks, hooray. Uh, hooray hooray for me um, so if you want to go see the Sapphires it is already out open on Wednesday along with Argo there's a double yes. bill if you fancy it Okay, on last week's show we had Jason Biggs, star of Grassroots, a political dramedy by Stephen Gyllenhaal about a contentious local election in Seattle in 2001. We didn't really talk to Jason about the film. Yeah. A little bit. You might be able to guess. A little bit. A little, a little bit. bit. Uh, you might be able to guess why, Phil. Oh, well, Jason Jason Biggs is wonderful. We, we love wonderful. Jason Biggs. And he's um, very good in this film. He is good in this film. And I think he was quite quite wry and funny when he came in talking about his, his range <laughs> and try not do a film where he doesn't get his penis out. Um, he doesn't get his penis out in this film. Um, nor, thankfully, in the pod booth. Nor in the pod booth. What he does do is he plays a political reporter called Phil Campbell in Seattle. It's based on a book, early 90s. Like the Sapphires, it's a true story, we should point that out. It is exactly. It's a true story based on a book. I think, again, Jason mentioned in the interview, it wasn't religious to the book, necessarily. But it's written by this guy who um, gave up his job and decided to become like a Alistair Campbell type 
political Svengali for an environmental activist played by Joel David Moore in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, from Avatar, etc. From Avatar and Dodgeball, etc. And um, he is campaigning on an environmental ticket to become a city councillor in Seattle, mm-hmm. as I say, early noughties, not early 90s. And he wears a polar bear suit and he's kind of wacky and out there. It's a film that kind of examines political activism. It's sort of a tart drama. So it's got a comedy element to it. it Unfortunately, it kind of hangs on us really being rooting for this guy. He's a, he's a little man in the machinery. Joel David Moore's character. Yeah. Who's frankly unlikable he's not a nice guy is the gist of it you really need to be on side with with the, with a character like this because he, he takes you through this world where you know of scheming and politics and um it's got a strong sense of place it's got a strong sense of like being in seattle which is very filmic i love films that are set in seattle you know singles those sort of stuff that sort of stuff that kind of dank alternative slightly bohemian atmosphere permeates this film as well directed mm-hmm. by stephen dad of maggie and jake gyllenhaal yes. and he does an okay job i think you know it's hard to pinpoint where it goes wrong except in the characterization which is messy and the unsympathetic lead gives you no one to root for and in a film like this you've got no one to root for you've got nowhere to go and mm. it's not funny enough to stand up as a kind of really black comedy you know and it doesn't really warm the cockles in the way that the Sapphires does sadly and uh, of course it uh, is being billed as a comedy it's being marketed as a comedy and yeah. it's not, yeah. that's, that's it's not really no. I mean, it's and it's being, weird it's timing spun. it's weird timing for this one as well to, to come out just after the election I mean obviously the US got it first um, but to come just after the US election here feels bizarre frankly yeah um, yeah it is a strange, strange timing you think they could have pushed it forward a couple of weeks perhaps uh, indeed indeed uh, okay well we gave that one two stars but hey the interview with Jason Speaks was great fun if you want to listen to that it's available on last week's podcast uh, also out this week uh, is the excellent drama My Brother the Devil uh, which we gave four stars to and a cracking documentary about Ray Harryhausen called Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan and quite rightly so too both are four stars movies uh, both are very much worth your time if you can find a cinema showing them because they're, they, they have a limited release with uh, Skyfall eating up all the screens available at the moment uh, and that is it unless there's anything else any more business anyone want to say anything anyone no. happy yeah that's no, fine yeah Very good yeah. good I think I should say just so people have a level playing field if you wanted to play bingo with me I say the phrase blew me away a lot okay so have a shot if you hear that if I say that again um okay for the drinking game. For the drinking game. Do you think anyone's actually left alive by this point? No. If you're if you're here at this point and you're listening to this, <laughs> congratulations. Well, well done. Well done. Uh, you, you've done it. You've made it through the end of this week's Emperor podcast. Join us next week if your liver allows it for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Something. someone. I don't Jeff know Boucher. Who. Jeff Boucher. If, Get over here. Listen, if he hears this podcast, he's never going to come within a mile of this pod booth, quite frankly. Well, who can blame him? Who, uh, I, You'd I, be perving all I'd over him. I'd call that man something silly. Oh. Wife! Wife! Uh, how exciting. Anyway, who knows? Um, yes. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeff Boucher was completely Jeff, off your stride. Jeff Boucher, what is, what's happening with Jeff Boucher? Okay, it's time to say goodbye to Helen. Goodbye. It's time to say goodbye to Ali. Bye then. It's time to say goodbye to Phil. Bye-bye. And it's time to say goodbye to me. Goodbye. I'll see you soon for next week's podcast. Absolutely.